Matthew chapter 9, if uh, you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a chair within reach somewhere. Somewhere within reach, definitely grab one, turn to Matthew, which is in the New Testament towards the end of your Bible. Matthew chapter 9, first book in the New Testament, Malachi, Matthew, Mark, Matthew chapter 9. We, uh, as we usually do, we study books of the Bible verse by verse, just take each verse as it comes. And let the Word of God speak for itself. Matthew chapter 9. We'll be in verses 27 through 34 tonight. Well, the story came out a few months ago uh, about a woman in St. Louis. And I believe it was back in August. And it all started when she began applying uh, for credit. She applied for credit and was turned down once. She applied for more credit and was turned down again, and she uh, was turned down again and again and again, and then she uh, applied for a loan to a house and was turned down again, and she began wondering what's going on here, because my credit isn't that bad, and she called these uh, couple different credit reporting agencies And ask them, okay, I don't have bad credit. Why do I keep getting turned down here? This doesn't make sense. And the credit reporting agencies all told her, well, you can't get credit because you're dead. And she said, well, I'm talking to you on the phone right now. How how does that work? What's going on here? She said, well, the, the credit agency said, well, you're not alive. Therefore, you can't be issued a line of credit. The computers are telling us that you're dead, notwithstanding the voice on the other line of the phone. Of course, she did not believe their insistence that she was dead. However, the credit, the credit reporting agencies continued to insist, uh, you are dead. We're sorry. We cannot issue you, a dead person, a line of credit or a loan or any such thing. And as the situation continued... Uh, they, she, she, she filed a, a few lawsuits against the credit reporting agencies, and these reporting agencies were very slow to embrace the evidence that she was alive, the evidence of, well, talking to her on the phone, uh, other documents that she submitted to them, for example, and so on. But despite the overwhelming evidence that she was alive, The fact was denied, and the assertion was made, well, it's hard for you to convince a computer that you're alive when the computer thinks you're dead. The overwhelming evidence was denied. And on the passage that we're going to study tonight from the Word of God, we'll see something similar, namely, that there is overwhelming evidence of a certain fact, something far more important, something of preeminent importance, the evidence that Jesus is who he said he was who he is, that he is God, the only God, that he is the Messiah, the way, the truth, and the life, the way, the path to heaven, the Savior for humanity, second to none, the Savior. The evidence is so overwhelming that perhaps, as we'll see from the text, even just this one passage, that it would be as unfortunate to reject him as it was for these credit agencies to not believe this woman that she was alive. So would that follow along as I read from Matthew chapter 9? I'm going to read verses 27 through 34. Matthew 9, verse 27 through verse 34. Follow along as I read the inerrant word of God. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, Son of God. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe I'm able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout all that land. And as they were going, a mute demon-possessed man was brought to him, After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. 
And we're saying nothing like this has ever happened, has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Well, before we uh, dive into the glorious minutia of this passage, a couple of uh, notes of background, what's going on here, starting big picture, a big view of the forest, and we'll get closer to the trees. The Bible is uh, not a uh, is not one religious book among many, filled with random sayings and bizarre events, just sort of thrown down like a modern art masterpiece, no rhyme or reason. Uh, it's not just these uh, esoteric events thrown down by uh, disengaged monks looking to assert their failing agendas on the world or any such thing. Uh, and I used to, prior to seriously studying the Bible, I used to think that, though I'd never studied it, amazingly enough. But there's nothing randomly or disorganized about it. It's the very word of our Creator, of our loving God, who has decided to speak to us with purpose, precision, and organization. And really, in short, the Bible is God's inerrant, without error, clear message to humanity about God, about himself, about us, about our imperfections, about our need for him, and about his calculated and compassionate solution to our human brokenness uh, through the person and the work of Christ. Christ is the solution. So the Bible is... Uh, it's not a book whose main message is be more moral, but its message is behold Christ. Uh, The Bible's primary message is not try hard to follow some path to God, but Christ followed the path and set the path we could not and trust in him as your path. That's what the Bible is about. The main message, uh, main message of the Bible is not, well, learn a few mess, a few lessons from this great man, Christ, but it is be reconciled to this great God Christ through his death on the cross. So in that sense, the message, the message in these pages is pretty simple. God is not tossing down a myriad of sort of spiritual thought labyrinths to get humanity uh, and say, well, ha, let's, say, let's see haha, if they can figure it out and see if they can figure out this maze and how to get to heaven. That is not what is happening in the Bible, quite the contrary. It is a message from the only God, the loving God, who's saying, okay, humanity, no need to speculate on who I am and how to get to heaven because I love you. And like a parent lovingly and plainly speaking directions to a child for their good, so I am lovingly and plainly speaking to you about who I am and how to get to heaven through faith and the person, through faith in the person of Christ. That is the essence of the Bible. Christ is the greatness of God shown in the person of God in the Bible. He's the mercy of God demonstrated in the Son of God. So this gives us clarity, this sort of big picture of, of the Bible, of the 66 books here, gives us uh, clarity as we look into these particular books, for example, these four books here called the Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, they are very simply biographical accounts written and recorded through eyewitnesses and close acquaintances of Christ, uh, who really, they all had sort of a different background, but really saying the same thing because they saw the same thing, that Christ is God and the Messiah. Put your trust in him for forgiveness and the way to heaven. None of these writers are commanding ignorant, blind faith either. I love that about the word of God in the scriptures. Quite the contrary, they were careful to record simply what they saw and heard so that all readers afterwards would have a responsible and informed faith. Faith is never to be a blind faith. It is to be responsible faith. In Jesus Christ, a faith founded in undeniable displays of deity, of love, power, of authority, of godness. So in studying the word of God, I find it helpful to keep those big picture things in mind to correctly understand the details. And so with that sort of framework, we'll get into our passage and study this compelling event 
in the book of Matthew. The main idea of our study tonight, it's in the first, uh, second page of your bulletin, just sort of a big picture of what's going on here in verse 27 to 34. It is this, Jesus undeniably demonstrates that he is God and the Messiah so that we might come to him to receive the mercy of salvation. Very simple. Jesus undeniably demonstrates that he is God and the Messiah so that we might come to him to receive the mercy of salvation. And so from the text uh, outline that we will observe in the text, sort of some big picture principles that we will see, some landmarks as we journey through the text is this. Six facts to motivate a trust in Christ for salvation. Six facts to motivate a trust in Christ for salvation. And number one is this. Very simply, Christ is God and the Messiah who's come to save us. Christ is God and Messiah who's come to save us. Look in verse 27. Look at verse 27 with me. Let's get right into the text. As Jesus went on from there. If you weren't with us, you would not know where there is. Uh, a reminder of the situation from last week. There is talking about the home of a man named Jairus and his wife, where their 12-year-old daughter had died. She was dead. It was their only daughter, as this event happened in the first century, and Christ healed her miraculously and so mercifully. In the midst of it all, he also healed a suffering woman. Uh, In verse 20 there, who had been sickly for for years and so jesus is out the door from raising jairus's daughter from the dead and he can barely take a breath and then it happens look back at verse 27 two blind men followed him crying out have mercy on us son of david blindness a significant form of of physical suffering a few years ago the world health organization estimated there are some 39 million people blind worldwide are about one in 200 people, one in 200. And during the first century, blindness was more common than it is now because of the lack of uh, the medical advances we have and so on. But records show that Jesus healed more people with blindness than any other form of physical suffering. Life for the blind in those days was very difficult. You were typically would, uh, it was life as a beggar. And now, though these two men here, they, are, they see him, they are calling out to him, though they're beggars, one reason this event is recorded is because of their remarkable understanding that Christ is God and the Messiah. Their lack of physical sight was no obstruction to spiritual sight, the far more important, seeing who Christ really is. We know that because Christ will highlight their faith here in a few verses. So, One of the remarkable things we keep seeing in Jesus' ministry in Matthew 8 through 9 is this demeanor of those upon whom he continues to show mercy. These people that he is highlighting, their faith, including these two blind men, and there's some lessons to learn about their faith, true saving faith, some lessons to learn about the attitude that we must come with to Christ if we will be saved. These are ingredients of, of saving faith. They're not what saves you. Christ is what saves you. But Matthew wants, wants us to learn from these individuals. Though they might be unimpressive outwardly, their marks of saving faith certainly are exemplary. Just a couple of quick notes here. Notice, number one, they have an understanding of their brokenness. This is essential for saving faith. The essential attitude for you to go to heaven, to come to Jesus with. An understanding of personal brokenness, spiritually and physically. Whether we're blind or headed to surgery or relationally, whatever it is, the point is not what specific kind of way you're experiencing human frailty, but the fact that you are human and you are frail. You die. You are sinful. Like all humanity. We must, we have to Put away the delusions of anything on the contrary. Number two, and sort of consequent of understanding our brokenness, is a desperation. A a God-focused desperation. Do you see that in the text? Notice in verse 27, it says, they were crying out. And in the original language in the New Testament, the Greek, it, it reads literally, they were continually crying out. And the Greek word meant they were They were shouting. It was like a yelling. 
Have mercy on us. They kept shouting, it says. A desperation. Third, notice they had a persistence. Saving faith involves a persistence. The language indicates, again, more than one plea. And it says they were following after him. Persistence. Saving faith, number four, uh, involves a, an empty-handedness. We approach Christ knowing we have nothing to offer him, as these blind men did. Uh, these blind men are not coming to Christ and saying, well, we've been good people. Uh, we've given to charity this year, and you know we, we mowed our lawn, and we're nice to our neighbors. They're not saying any such thing. They're just saying, have mercy. They come empty-handed. Speaking of which, number five, fifth mark of saving faith, the attitude you must come to God with is an appeal to mercy. An appeal to mercy. When they say, have mercy on us, they're, again, they're not pointing out any moral finesse that Jesus would uh, turn an impressed eye towards them. The word in the Greek for mercy, it means show me compassion or benefit that I don't deserve, nor have I earned. Show me mercy, please. So they're appealing to the character of God, not their own character or worth. It's essential to come to God with such an attitude. And number six, an understanding and an embracing of Christ's identity. An understanding of Christ's identity. Notice they say, son of David. Very important title there. They understand his identity, son of David. This was not a term that the first century Jew would flippantly throw around. It was a very serious term. And if you were to call anyone this, it meant you were calling them God and Messiah and the only savior of the world. Son of David. Again, without physical sight, they see who Christ is very clearly. So if you, if you called someone son of David... It, it would stop the show in first century Jewish commerce, you know, in a town. Everyone would stop and come be quiet and say, who, where? Who are you talking about? A quick history on that title, Son of David, just to sort of put ourselves in the first century Israelite sandals. I'll put a passage up here, Luke 1. When the angel comes to Mary in Luke 1, the angel is sent by God and he says, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God and behold, You'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he'll be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Now, how can Christ's father be David if Christ is God and he's always existed? Because Joseph, Mary's soon-to-be husband, was from the line of David. And so Christ, though being God, taking on humanity, came purposely into the line of David, which was prophesied a thousand years earlier in 2 Samuel 7. Put it up there real quick. This is God speaking to King David about a thousand BC, again, a thousand years before he came. God says to David, he says, David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you die, in other words, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and watch this. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In other words, it's got to be someone who isn't going to die. I will be to him a father. God speaking to David about this king. He shall be to me a son and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your, your throne shall be established forever. Notice the emphasis there on eternality, forever, forever, forever. So it's going to be someone who is human, but also eternal. One more quick passage, a very significant passage from about 800 BC, Isaiah. For a child, it's a passage at Christmas we read often. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Speaking of Christ, the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end, again, that eternality, no end to the increase of his government or his rule or of peace on the throne of David. Do you see that there? And over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forever 
more. This is a messianic passage or a passage about the Messiah 800 years before it happened. Let's put the passage up there one more time. I want to show you something in verse 7. Notice, there'll be no end of the increase of his government. And he will be wonderful counselor, mighty God. So a child will be born who is God. Do you see that there? Very important detail. And this is, this is what happened in the birth of Christ. So because of passages like this, your average Israelite throughout the centuries BC had high anticipation, wondering when is this going to happen? Oh, when will this individual come and save us and reign forever? Now, that's all fine and good, but another question is, how would the average Israelite recognize this son of David, this fully God, fully man individual? Because any religious uh, con artist could come and say, well, I'm the Messiah, and many do, many have and many still do. God cares that we clearly know the truth, as we said in the beginning. So he gave about 300 prophesied or foretold indicators, ways that we would know, okay, this, this individual is this fully God, fully man Messiah. 300, about 330 to be exact, spoken hundreds of years before Christ came. And we're not going to look at all 330 tonight for sake of time, but a couple of them, just so we know. For Isaiah 7, he'll be born a virgin. Micah 5, he'll be born from Bethlehem. Again, those are pretty hard things to, to, to replicate, aren't they? A couple more, Isaiah 35, as we read in the opening here. This is that passage that we read for our opening reading is, again, about 800-ish BC, speaking of Christ. God giving his people indicators, this is how you'll know. Be strong, he says. Fear not, behold your God, he will come with vengeance. With recompense of God, he'll come and save you. So he's a savior. And the eyes, the eyes of the blind shall be opened. So it'll be someone who can heal people with blindness. Again, that's not easy. That's not going to be easy to replicate. And the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. So he'll heal quadriplegics. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So th- those are... Those are some things that your, your ancient Israelite, that they would cling to and say, okay, I'm watching carefully for that. And over the centuries, it wasn't happening, it didn't happen, it didn't happen. All the way up until the first century, Christ starts doing these things. And Matthew 8 and 9 is recorded in the Bible to say, look, it's here. He's doing these things. This is him. This is the God-man, the Messiah. And in fact, in, in Luke 7, John the Baptist, uh, he is in jail and he sends some of his disciples. And when the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, to Jesus, to ask, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? And watch Jesus' answer. It's so brilliant. He said, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. Jesus is quoting that passage from 800, year, 800 years earlier in Isaiah 35. The blind receive sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, dead are raised, poor have the gospel preached to him. And by the way, Jesus says, blessed are those, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. In other words, I, I'm him. I'm the one. I am God. I am Messiah, Jesus is saying. It couldn't get more clear. Christ quotes the prophecy from Isaiah 35 and says, you tell me, you tell me, how many times in the last thousand years have you seen a guy with a mere word, oh, raise up quadriplegics, raise the dead, give sight to the blind, you tell me, he's here. This is why Christmas is such a big deal, by the way. This is why Christ is such a big deal. And so when the blind men cry out in verse 27 of Matthew 9, Son of David. It's more than mere Jewish social etiquette here. They're pulling from all these passages that they would know because they heard him growing up Sabbath after Sabbath in synagogue. 
It is a cry, when they say son of David, it is a cry of confession. Confession that this is my God. I trust in him. It is a cry of of confidence in Christ, of trust in Christ, of belief in Christ, of worship of Christ. All bound up in that as they're yelling that in the crowds here, this scene. Christ is God and the Messiah who's come to save us. Number two. Number two. Christ is not only looking for a faith that professes words about him, but a faith that follows after him. Christ is not only looking for a faith that professes words about him, but a faith that follows after him. In other words, when Christ came, he wasn't looking for people who would check the box Christian on their census. But the people whose lives, by the grace of God alone, were following after him. Look at verse 28. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him. And so this is an interesting scene. Because recall in verse 27, it says the blind men were following after Jesus. Again, they're blind. And they're crying out for mercy. But now it says he, Jesus, enters the house, some house. We don't know what house it is. And then the blind men came up to him. Do you see that there? Which means Jesus let them follow him for a little bit. Probably along with the crowds. There's a lot of crowds around here in Capernaum, the town of Capernaum. A little bit of a struggle maybe for blind men to follow him. But apparently it did not deter them. Again, which highlights the saving faith of these guys all the more. It seems then that Christ is looking for more, of a, more than a word of affirmation. But a following after. A little bit of persistence. A little bit of effort. A life. Verse 28. This is seen all the more in his question. Watch what, watch what happens. Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? And it's an interesting way to respond to the two blind men because Jesus could have simply healed them in verse 27 when, he's, when they're crying out before he started to keep walking. Again, they're crying out and he's just, he keeps walking. He could have healed them right there. But he engages them a bit to bring out their exemplary saving faith. Of course they believe this, Jesus. Why even ask? Again, to bring them along and to bring them along and to show their saving faith. That faith means more than speaking. It means following. And the question is loaded with all of that son of David background. When Christ asks, do you believe that I'm able to do this? He's asking, do you believe that I am the Messiah from Isaiah 35 about whom it was said he'll heal the blind? Do you believe this is who I am? Do you believe Isaiah 9? All that is in Christ's question. And by the word, the word, the, the, the word believe there, do you believe in the Greek, it, it means a complete trust in something. It, it means to have a, a, a confidence, complete confidence in something, or a, like, a, like a reliance upon something because of the trustworthiness in that thing that results in a changed life. That's what the word means. So Christ is asking them, in effect, do you have complete confidence in my power to meet your spiritual and physical needs such that you'll rely on me and you'll follow me? Do you believe Christ wants them to own it? To own it. He, he's not asking easier, non-saving, irrelevant questions like, did you go to church with your mom and dad when you were young? He's not asking that. He's not asking, have you been to church before or have you given to charity? He's not asking, have you felt a really powerful spiritual feeling before? Have you checked a box of a certain religion? And he's not even asking, do you believe that I exist? Uh, none, of those, none of those things can save us. Bring us to heaven. And said, instead, he's asking, do you believe 
that I am able to do this for you? It's a question that centers on the ability of Christ and the power of Christ. It's a personal question. You as individuals, a faith that we own because we know that we personally need Christ. Christ is looking for a personal faith. Now, that doesn't mean he's looking for a private faith. He wants them to express it openly. Saving faith, though personal, will always be public because it's following, right? Think of it like this. Suppose you're going skydiving and you're sitting in the plane. There's a parachute sitting there next to you. And the issue is not, do I believe that parachutes exist? The issue is not, have I sat next to a parachute before? The issue is not, have I, have I studied about parachutes? That's not the issue. What is the issue? You're about to jump out of a plane. Eh? The issue is, do you believe that this thing can save you, such that you will rely totally on it to land safely on the ground? That's what saving faith looks like. So it's a personal belief that results in a public action, so it is with Christ. Do you believe that I am able? Christ pushes our, our personal confession of faith in him to confirm its authenticity. Christ pushes your personal confession in him to confirm its authenticity because he loves you. He loves you. So what about you? Do you believe? Some of you don't. And, and I praise God that you're here. Come meet your, your God. He loves you so much. Have the confidence. Christ, he's willing and able to show his, his loving and his powerful mercy on you. Verse 28, look back there. They said to him, Yes, Lord. The great answer. The simplicity of it is, is only surpassed by the sincerity, isn't it? In saying yes to Christ, they, they, there's two things going on here. In saying yes to Christ, they are affirming that he is the foretold Messiah, the, the son of of David, the son of God, the God-man, and in saying, Lord, yes, Lord, they call him Lord, which that, that term Lord means one of highest supremacy and authority, unequaled. This is what the Lord means. So it's a public confession of a personal confidence. It's saving faith. Christ is looking for a faith that follows. Number two, number three. Christ is willing and able, furthermore, to meet our greatest needs through faith. Yes, he is looking for a faith that follows, but he will meet our greatest needs through faith. Starting with the greatest need being spiritual, your, your, your forgiveness of sins. Reconciliation to him. Look at verse 29. Then he touched their eyes, saying, It shall be done to you according to your faith. Amazing. They paid no money. He didn't ask, you know, how many Bible questions can you answer? Just because you believe. What a gentle expression of our glorious God to a needy humanity. It shall be done to you according to your faith. Jesus is not applauding them because they have some abstract faith or because they are a people of faith but only because they have faith in him, confidence in him. Saving faith has Jesus as its object, or it's a worthless faith. Faith that's faith in nothing is not faith. And, and the point here, by the way, is not that every blind or sick or injured person will instantly experience complete healing if they would just believe in Christ, the side of heaven. Many will not. But all who express faith 
the faith of the blind beggars will experience spiritual healing, the, the removal of our deserved penalty from Christ. And in the next life, when Christ returns, the removal of death, suffering, and sickness forever. And again, these miracles are just a pulling back the curtain of heaven to say, look, this is what's going to happen in the future. Just a little preview. Believe in me. And verse 30, look at verse 30. And their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. Their blindness is completely and instantly healed. We don't know how long these guys were blind, probably for life. But imagine never having seen in your life and is that in that day they would have to grope around for everything all their life a beggar and this Jesus shows up about whom all these promises are written and these blind guys would cling to Isaiah 35 and you would too if you were blind oh i hope he comes in my life and then bam he touches their eyes and all of a sudden there is a beautiful blue sky there and full green trees and a majestic orange sunset. Not that you would know what blue or beautiful meant, or green or full or majestic or orange meant, but you saw it, and it struck a chord in you as you're made in the image of God and you worshipped God. A stunning sight for the first time his blind men see. And we can bet that it was 2020, right? This wasn't like a 2200 sort of progress into things. This is eagle-eye vision. When Christ gives you sight, you're not going to need contact lenses. Keep in mind, by the way, as a side note, today in 2015, there's still no cure for blindness. I was reading an article in Medical News Today from a month or two ago which said retinal de- degeneration disorders uh, have no cure. One ophthalmologist from the Mayo Clinic, he he said the problem is just with retinal degeneration that there are several hundred biochemical abnormalities that they know of, several hundred, which cause this degeneration into blindness. And then he added, he said this, while there are several patterns of retinal degeneration, each is treated differently depending on the cells affected as well as the stage and severity of their degeneration. And with a touch... Christ deals with the several hundred biochemical abnormalities. The billions of cells deals with them in an instant. Damaged cells. The nerves. Restores vision completely. No microscope. No surgery. No degree in medicine or ophthalmology. This is God. This is an unspeakable power. He's God. Through simple faith, Christ meets our greatest needs. Number four, Christ, number four, is not looking. Something strange happens now. Christ is not looking to be our entertainer, but our Savior. Christ is not looking to be our entertainer, but our Savior. He's looking to be our Savior. Where is this in the text? Look back at verse 30. Their eyes were opened, and Jesus, watch this, sternly warned them, see that no one knows about this. See that no one knows about this. Why would he say that? And that's not going to work very well, of course. <laughs> but, but why would he command that? It's not because he wanted to keep his power a secret or else he would not have performed all of these other miracles which he has already done. Instead, what is going on here, Christ is often talking about this. We saw this back in Matthew 8 as well where he said a very similar thing. In short, here's what's happening. His purpose in miraculous healings is not to put on some sort of magic show. Jesus is not a spiritual Barnum and Bailey. He's not looking to arouse fans 
for his spiritual circus and then send them home. And this is how many people approached him, by the way. In other passages, John 6, for example, uh, Pharisees, others are coming up to him and in effect saying, okay, Jesus, do another trick and another trick and do another trick and another trick. Keep us entertained and numbed, Jesus. Give us our spiritual religion fix for the week, will you? And when you turn on, by the way, so-called Christian TV these days, oftentimes this is what you see. Nothing more than some circus. But Christ's goal is not to arouse our emotions, but to save us from our sins. Something far more loving. He's a savior, not an entertainer. His miracles are to induce our repentance, not our entertainment. Jesus loves us far too much to merely care that we are entertained. He loves us so much that he wants to save us and change us and rescue us from eternal punishment and bring us to heaven. Entertainment might make us comfortable for a few moments here on earth, but Christ seeks to make us comfortable for all eternity in heaven. Jesus will be calling humanity to a much deeper commitment than getting excited about his miracles. For some of us, man, that's where, that's where it stops. Like the blind man, he's calling us to a confidence him, a confidence him following after him. What about us here today? Where are you at with that? We might take an interest in God and in Christ, which is good. But is it possible that we're looking for just some religious entertainment? Are we merely hoping that Christ will put on a little Barnum and Bailey performance for us? Keep us distracted. If we're not careful, we can approach Jesus as if he's our spiritual pusher. We come to him every Sunday to give us our fix, our religion high, our spiritual feeling. And no more. Beware of this. There's not much value to feeling a religious rush. It may feel nice for a moment and make a great story for your friends. But the, the greater value is, is humbly following Christ, worshiping him, trusting in him, regardless if there's a feeling, because often there won't be. There's nothing wrong with a great feeling about Christ and his love for us. That's wonderful. However, we need to be careful that we are not worshiping Christ for a feeling he gives, but we're worshiping him because he's God. Christ loves us too much to merely be our cosmic performer. He's not looking to be our entertainer, but our savior, number four. Number five, Christ brings salvation to us so we might bring sinners to him. He brings salvation to us so that we might bring sinners to him. Look at verse 31. But they went out and spread the news about him throughout all the land. Of course they did. So in amazement at Christ's glory that he's the Messiah, they bolt into the streets and understandably perhaps do the opposite thing that he asks them to do. I would have done the same. But notice the news, they're, they're spreading news about Christ. It's about Christ. In Greek, there's one word for spread the news. It means to, to, to make something widely known, uh, to, to proclaim the fame of something. That's what it meant. And how could they keep quiet? How could they? It's Jesus They just met Christ. They received forgiveness for sin, healing of their eyes. Of course, they're going to spread the news. This is Christ. This is their knee-jerk reaction. In verse 32, as they were going out, a mute demon-possessed man was brought to him. Now, they, as they were going out, referring to the blind men, Speaking about Christ extensively, verse, end of verse 32, notice the text, a mute demon-possessed man was brought to him. That translation from the Greek is not entirely accurate. 
It actually reads this. It says, they, as they were going out, they brought to him a mute demon-possessed man. They, as they, the blind men were going out, they, the blind men, brought a mute demon-possessed man to Jesus. So they are fervently speaking about Christ around town, run into this man under great suffering. The guy is deaf, unable to speak, possessed by a demon. We don't have time to get in all the details of demon possession. I would refer you on this issue to a study we did called Understanding the Demonic Realm. You can get that on the website, Understanding the Demonic Realm. But he, like the two blind men, is needing to be saved. Because you can't be a Christian and possessed by a demon. A, Christ, a Christian is indwelt by a much greater spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. So he's not saved. He doesn't know God and he's suffering. So they do the only reasonable thing they can think. Bring him to Jesus. Bring him to Jesus. Christ brings salvation to us so that we might bring sinners to him. We're not saved to rat hole the good news and to put this immense love that's been shown to us into our spiritual safety deposit box. Oh, to spread it throughout the land, to bring sinners to Christ. Whether we're single, a mom, a dad, anything in between, God places you, Cornerstone, God places you in your specific jobs, your neighborhoods, places, to bring the great news of Christ. The Wood Day is just, you know, the whole Wood Day thing, it's like one out of 365. It's just to prime the pump. It's just to spring load us, isn't it? Like these valiant beggars, let's love people enough around us to bring Christ to them. Each of you can think of someone in your life Sometimes people will even ask you about the church. Oh, you go to church? And you might say, oh, well, they didn't ask me about Christ this time. Friend, use their question about the church as a slow pitch of a home plate to tell them about Christ. Oh, what's your church like? Five core values. Christ, he came, died on the cross for our sins, rose. Use that. It's an opportunity. What examples the blind men are for us? Well, sixth and last. If we reject Christ, it is not due to the lack of evidence that he is God and the Savior and Messiah, furthermore. If we reject Christ, if we will not surrender our lives to Christ and follow him, it is not because there is a lack of evidence that he's God and Savior, verse 33 and 34. It is not because evidence is wanting. Well, it remains to be seen if he's... No, friend. No, it doesn't remain to be seen. We just, we just need to take a little more of an objective look at what is already there by the grace of God and receive his love for us. Look at verse 33. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke. Another miracle of... of hearing and speaking, and the crowds were amazed, saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. Nothing like this has been seen in Israel because the Messiah hasn't arrived until now. It's a clear st statement testifying to the overwhelming evidence that Christ is who he says he is. Verse 34, but the Pharisees. Oh, but the Pharisees. We're saying, look at verse 34. He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. The Pharisees, if you're not familiar, were a group of, of, of formal religious leaders in the first century ancient East. And, and you could recognize them in the streets because they sort of were a, they, had, they were a spectacle, religiously speaking. They had the big hats and the elaborate robes and, and, and accessories dangling off of them. But their spirituality was no deeper than that. It was all spiritual theatrics. It was all a show. It was a sham. It was a stage performance in the name of God, which made it doubly worse. They were as great as skeptics. But notice their comment backfires. 
He casts out demons. He does this miracle. They testify to the miracle by the ruler of the demons. The ruler of the demons is Satan. So they're saying he's a Satan worshiper. He's a servant of Satan and a Satan worshiper. That's what they're saying about Jesus. The Pharisees are like those credit reporting agencies. The woman was alive, applying for credit, talking to them. But it wasn't quite enough evidence. Well, you might be talking to us, but we still think you're dead. He's, he's, like, he's a worshiper of Satan or something. Their hearts were so hard. How is your heart? Please don't make the tragic error of the credit reporting agencies and even more of the Pharisees. Please do not make that error. Christ has absolutely laid it out. If, if, if you reject Christ, it is not because there's a lack of evidence. It because, it's because you suppress the truth. You put down the truth. That's why. If you will not bow the knee to Jesus. And he loves you so much. He gives you another day. Every day is another day. And he did a greater miracle than this. The Bible says he lived this perfect life all the way to the cross. He lived this morally perfect life that we could never live. Astounding. He, ne- he always loved God perfectly and he always loved people perfectly. You and I have never done that. And he did that so that he would go to the cross. And on the cross, he was suffering in our place. What was happening there is God was putting our penalty of sin on him, uh, what we deserved for our moral imperfections, so that God would then credit to us this forgiveness and this righteousness so that we could have reconciliation with God and have uh, this assurance of heaven forever. Isaiah 53 says this, speaking of Christ, he was pierced for our transgressions or our sin. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's a pretty good deal. Christ gets the punishment for our sin that he never committed. We get the forgiveness and the mercy that he earned for us. But you must receive it by faith, friend. You must come like the blind beggar, understanding your brokenness, desperate, persistent, empty-handed, believing in Christ who he is. That furthermore, he rose from the dead, the greatest of all miracles, to show he conquered sin and death. Do not enter eternity, friend. Do not enter eternity without Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your love. You are so good. The evidence that you are the Messiah, God, and Savior is before our eyes. Lord, those of us who do know you, help us live lives of integrity that testify to that. And the rest of us, Lord, may we believe. May we receive your tender love and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.